Right, if you could take out your copy of God's perfect and holy word and open up to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. We are uh, making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, slowly but surely, it's a big book, and there's just so much, uh, so much meat in every little vignette here. And um, we are off to a good start, and today we, uh, we really get to some interesting things in, um, in, uh, in our text. We're going to be in verse 21, going through uh, verse 28. And you know, every day we encounter people who... Uh, display their, their extraordinary ability or power or authority to do something. And when we see them display these sorts of things, uh, we often react in astonishment. You know, I can, uh, I, I, I can think of people like, like Michael Jordan when he still played in the, in the NBA. I don't know if you follow basketball or I don't know if you ever watched Michael Jordan play but he was absolutely incredible. Now, I may be going out uh, on a little bit of stretch for some of you here, but I would venture to say that I think Michael Jordan is probably the best basketball player that has ever stepped on the court. Yeah, so we get an amen. Yes, we have a couple witnesses here on that one. Um, and when you saw him in a slam dunk contest, when you saw the way that he could just handle things under pressure in, in an NBA Finals game, or if you just saw him in any regular season game, he had control. He was, he was the man. And there was a sense that when you watch what he did, that you would just say, who is this guy? He was born for this. He, he's incredible. He displayed his authority by the way that he played the game. You know, it, it doesn't have to be something like on a grand scale like Michael Jordan. Uh, but have you ever been in a room with somebody that just their mere presence commands authority? Uh, you're immediately drawn to them. Maybe they're an expert in their field. Uh, maybe they just have this charismatic personality. Uh, maybe you've encountered someone who has positional authority, and maybe they're a dignitary or a political leader. And whether they are a good leader or a, a bad leader, um, there is this weightiness of their authoritative presence. And in our passage this morning here, uh, Jesus continues in the very, very early days of his ministry, and it's apparent from the outset that Jesus displays his authority. And he did so unlike anything anyone has ever seen up to that point and ever since. For Jesus, as the Son of God, displayed his authority through his teaching and through his power over the demonic realm. So let's read this passage together, and then we'll, we'll break it down and see what God has for us this morning. It'll be on display on the screen if you have the ESV. You can read from your Bible, but let's go ahead and, and read together, starting in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath... He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing in him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us this morning in this, this short uh, little historical scene of Jesus' life to uh, live more faithfully toward you and to place ourselves under the authority of Christ, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. So Jesus is the central uh, figure of history, and continually throughout the book of Mark, we are going to need to come to terms with who he is. And today we can do that firstly by acknowledging Jesus' authority through his teaching. Acknowledge Jesus' authority through his teaching. You know, when we uh, come here on a Sunday morning, it's fairly predictable what's going to happen. You have an outline in your bulletin, but if you've been with us long enough, you sort of know the order. There's an opening song, announcements, prayer, a couple songs, uh, offertory, preaching, responding. That is an average Sunday of, of what a worship service would look like for us. Now, this scene here, starting in verse 21, tells us that this was an average Sabbath for this particular synagogue in Capernaum. Everything is going as normal. Uh, a synagogue was a local congregation of, of Jewish believers in an area. In order to have a synagogue, there had to be a quorum of about 10 elders, which are 10 men that were Jews, and they would be able to have a synagogue, which is a group of, of Jews meeting together. But the synagogue was a little bit different than uh, a church that we would think about, because as a church that we would think about, there's a, there's a governmental structure in sort of a way. There's a pastor who preaches every week, who, who teaches. There are people that kind of take care of the business and all that. In a synagogue, it was a little different. If there was anybody that was a leader or a pastor of the church, it would be like the head of the synagogue, but he never taught. He would only administrate. He would make sure that the affairs of the synagogue were, were going the way they should, and he would find speakers who would usually be scribes, and we'll talk about scribes here in, in, in just a moment. And on this particular uh, Sabbath, Jesus had the privilege to, uh, to preach and to expound on the Word of God. Now, notice here in uh, the first couple of verses, it, it tells us that Jesus taught and we have absolutely no idea what in the world Jesus taught here. Wouldn't it have been interesting to be in the synagogue and hear Jesus expound on his own word? Uh, what would that have been like? But um, Mark really uh, tells us here that it really is, it has little to do with the content and more to do with the authoritative presence that Jesus brings. Now notice that, that it says uh, little about what he says, but it says that he, that he preached with authority. It's the Greek word ex, uh, exousia, 
which, which means authority, and the prefix of that is, is the word ex, and we use this word quite a bit. Ex means out of, it means to, um, it means to, um, uh, to get away from something. You think of when we leave today, you're going to see the door that says exit. The ex meaning out of, it being it. You're getting out of it. Exit. And usia, uh, historically throughout the church, has meant substance. It's not literally what the word means, but it means uh, some sort of substance. And so with this authority, Jesus is, is taking something out of the word, and there, there's substance to it. It's the difference between someone going in front of a group of people and saying, my humble opinion, this is what I found through all the research that I've done, compared to someone that can authoritative, authoritatively say, thus says the Lord. This is authoritative of what Jesus is saying. It's, it cuts to the heart. It's got meat. It's got substance. Imagine the word of God being preached by God. They say that he had authority, not like these scribes. Now, these scribes were lawyers. They weren't like lawyers today. They were experts in, in, in the Mosaic law. Uh, they were experts in interpreting the law. They were experts in applying the law to how should it be lived out. They were often called rabbis. The word rabbi literally means great teacher, a great one. Um, they memorized the law. It was not uncommon for a scribe to have most, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized. Can you imagine that? The Old Testament. And that includes all of the numbers of people that are counted in the book of Numbers. So these guys were smart. Uh, they, had they had positional authority, which means that um, they derived their authority from being called a scribe. Uh, they derive their authority from the traditions. But yet here, Jesus' authority is not derived from his position. His authority is derived from the word of God. It is derived from his word. So he goes and he preaches whatever he says, and he's got this authoritative meat to it. And notice the, the attender's response here. It is absolute Astonishment. This is something that they've never heard. Jesus outpreached anything they had ever heard in their entire lives. He, his teaching was qualitatively different than that of the scribes. Now imagine how the scribes, these experts in the law, would have felt about this guy coming and preaching his first sermon. Now, uh, going through seminary, um, most of us uh, preachers would never for the life of us want to go back and listen to our first sermon. Because it's just terrible. Yes. Because <laughs> it's just terrible. I found an outline of my first sermon about a year ago, and looking at the outline, I can't believe I preached it. I'm not saying I'm any better now, but um, here... 
Imagine these scribes, these guys are learned, they have experience, they are the circuit preachers of the day. And here some young guy comes and the first message he preaches, and what does everybody say? Holy cow, this guy's good. It leaves them with the question, who is this? And again for Mark, it has less to do with the substance of what he says and more to do with who he is. You'll see that throughout the the Gospel of Mark, there's little dialogue. There's not much that Jesus says compared to Matthew or Luke. He's more concerned with who Jesus is and what he did. And and notice here that that in, in regards to how the attenders respond, when we initially encounter Jesus, we often sit in the same seats as those in that synagogue. Whether we are Christian or we are not, we need to come to grips with who this Jesus is. Jesus' teaching is unlike anyone ever in the history of the world. He, there's no other religious figure that spoke the way that Jesus did. There is no philosopher that has ever existed that has had more influence on the world than this rabbi that is preaching in this synagogue on that day. And the sense that Mark gives us in in Jesus' preaching is that it involved a response that may have given us and the original hearers a sense of fulfillment. Because it's obvious these people were, were hungry for the word. And maybe that's you this morning. You're hungry to know Jesus more. And you can find him in his word. For some, of, for some of them, it may have been joy. It's just joy in the scriptures as Jesus unfolds it. For some, perhaps, it's hope that God's word isn't left with the, the professional religious people. But it's with the commoners that Jesus is preaching to. And there's a sense in which, for us, that Jesus' word gives us personal conviction and makes us a little uncomfortable. For some, that may bring hope. And for some, it might bring us dread because it exposes things about us that we don't necessarily want to deal with. Or perhaps for some, here and in the world, as it was in Jesus' day, that his word draws a bit of anger. This man exposes our faults. And And as John says in his gospel, that quoting Jesus, that men prefer the darkness to the light. Because in the darkness, their deeds aren't exposed. So encountering Jesus then, just as these people in the synagogue, demands a response. And there's only one or two different responses that we can give. We can either uh, reject him outright, or we can receive him for who he, he, he is, the Son of God. Now C.S. Lewis is very interesting uh, when he writes on, on how we should think about Christ, he, he mentions firstly that there's a, there's a crowd of people that would say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. 
And he dismisses that outright and says, if Jesus was actually just a good moral teacher, then he wouldn't have said the kind of things that he said. Because there are some things that he said that were so offensive to some people that you would never call them a good teacher. So rather, Lewis gives us three options. We can either look at Jesus as a complete lunatic, meaning that he was crazy, which any psychologist that would look at Jesus honestly through his word would, would, uh, would say that's not even true because he's too consistent to be crazy. Lewis said the second way we can look at him is maybe he's a liar. But what liar would go to such a torturous death in order to preserve a lie that he is trying to perpetuate? Or the third option, the only thing that we have left is to believe that Jesus is indeed who he said he was, the Lord, the Son of God. If he is Lord, his authority must then supersede every other authority that you have in your life. His authority demands complete focus and concentration and control of every single aspect of your life. Now that may seem weighty, but Jesus promises us that it is not. It is not burdensome at all. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy, uh, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, for you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, Jesus isn't talking about having egg on your face here. What he's talking about is the yoke is a teaching. Take my teaching upon, uh, upon you. I will take the burden. And what I am teaching you is light. And look what he says in, in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Everyone then who hears uh, these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. So folks, we have a choice to make here today. What are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to reject him? Are we going to receive him? Acknowledge the authority of Jesus through his teaching. And second of all, we need to acknowledge Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm. Acknowledge Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm. Now, this is the part of the story where some of us Baptists get a little bit nervous. Because we live in this post-enlightened era in which uh, everything is explainable by reason. Uh, it's explainable by em empirical evidence. It's science-based. And, and we tend to put a lot of weight on things that are material, on things that are observable, and things that have physical 
substance to them. But the Bible presents a reality in which there are two things that are, that are, are going on. Not only the physical, but there's also an unseen spiritual realm that exists as well. The Word tells us that God created the physical world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the earth. He created the sky. He created people. He created cows and pigs and dogs and and all those things that, that are tangible, that we can see, that we can sense. But then also that God created this this unseen realm where spiritual beings dwell. And in that realm, there are two beings. One is that of angels. Angels, in in the Word, are are those uh, beings that serve God. They are His messengers. In fact, the word angel literally means messenger. They are uh, to serve in the affairs of people doing God's work in the unseen world for us. But there's this, this second group of beings called demons. And the Bible explains them sort of as fallen angels or angels that have gone bad. And they work to destroy the good work that God has done. Now, I, I, I wish that I had time to biblically, biblically review uh, the reality of this, but for now, we have to assume that these two realms exist, the physical and the spiritual, one being of uh, which has these things called demons. And so the question is, why don't we see more of this kind of stuff happening today that we read in verses uh, uh, 23 through 28? And the answer to that is, even biblically, these demonic uh, possessions are fairly rare. I can't think of one instance in the entire Old Testament in which it describes a demon possession of a person. Uh, I would invite any of you that know your Old Testament well to please, if you know one, please come and tell me because I would really like to know. And when Jesus comes, there seems to be an uptick in demonic uh, uh, possession in the Gospels. Um, But then when you read the early church fathers, it just doesn't come up very often. Uh, I've, I've known of a few pastors that have had demonic encounters I've had one in my nine years of pastoring, the story for another day, but they're relatively rare. And here now, while Jesus is preaching, imagine this, in the middle of a sermon like this, someone stands up and tries to show dominance over Jesus. And he says four things. The first thing is, what have you to do with us? And the, there's two answers to that. The first is, absolutely nothing. Jesus has nothing to do with them because they are unclean. He is perfectly holy. They are evil 
He is the embodiment of good. They are liars and deceptive. He is truth embodied. They seek death. Jesus came to bring life. So Jesus has nothing to do with these beings, but yet he has everything to do with them. Look at 1 John 3, 8. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Look at what it says here in, in, in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, that Jesus died, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 2, chapter 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. By the way, that, that rulers and authorities there is referring to, hev- well, not heavenly, but, but spiritual beings, in this case, demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So, these demons, what, do they ha- what does Jesus have to do with them? Everything, because he came to destroy their works. Second, the demons call him Jesus of Nazareth. And you wouldn't necessarily see a problem in that unless you knew that in the ancient world, when there were conflicts, getting the name of your opponent was a sign of victory. We see uh, this with Jacob when he was wrestling God in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob is wrestling with God, and Jacob gave his name to God, signifying that he was defeated by him. God gave him a new name, but yet, yet Jacob prevailed against God in this wrestling match. And if you remember that story well, what does Jacob say? What is your name? Remember what God said? Uh-uh. I don't give you my name. Because to give a name to an enemy was to show victory and defeat over them. And so this demon inside this man is trying to get victory over Jesus by saying, I've already overcome you because I already know who you are. It doesn't work. Look at the third thing that he says. Have you come to destroy us? Perhaps he got the wrong memo here. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. And fourthly, he said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, understand this, because this is a really important lesson for us in our lives. Whenever the demons come in contact with Jesus, they know who he is, They recognize him, and they're absolutely terrified. They cannot be around the holy. When we encounter Jesus, we just brush it off as if it's nothing. We reject him outright. We forget about him. We ignore him. And it, isn't it sobering to realize that the human heart 
is more deceived about the reality of Jesus than the demons are. We have got to come to grips with who Jesus is. Yet, whereas Jesus gives us grace in that regard, he has no patience and he has absolutely no time for these demons. Look in verse 25. Jesus says, Be silent and come out of him. Now notice Jesus is not wimpy here. He doesn't say, Just be quiet. Just get out here. We're in the middle of church. Sit down. No. Jesus uses a very forceful term that if we were to uh, switch it into our modern day lingo, it would be equivalent of Jesus saying, Shut up and get out of here right now. Jesus is all business here. And the demons put up one last fight. They convulse this guy and they cry out. And notice the reaction. This is the entire point of this story here that the people were absolutely amazed they were astounded they were bewildered and perhaps even a bit fearful how would you feel if in the middle of service somebody stood up and started yelling at the preacher and the preacher just said you Shut up and get out of here. And he falls on the floor as if he's having a seizure, starts screaming, and then all of a sudden he's fine. He's just a normal person. You would be astounded too. They question themselves, who is this? Not only does he teach like we've never seen, But he's got authority over the demons. They obey his voice. And notice that they put a certain order here that the teaching of Jesus supersedes the power over the demons. We have a lot of emphasis in in some circles around the church right now that just want to see the power encounters. They just want to see the miracles. They just want to see the healings. They just want to see that, just want to see that. But they neglect the teaching of Jesus. Where in Scripture, the teaching, the Word of God is always primary. And they recognize that here, and the demons do too. Jesus speaks, and they obey. And this will be a continual pattern in Mark. Who is this? The demons obey him. Nature obeys him. But the human heart exemplified in the apostles, as we'll see time and time again, continue to refuse to see him as he is and obey him the way they should. And each and every one of us needs to come to grips with who he is, not how we want to see him, but as he reveals himself. There is coming a day 
when we will see Jesus as he is, and if we don't come to terms with who Jesus is, our fate will be that of the demons. Jesus will say when we're trying to excuse ourselves and justify ourselves for not trusting, not believing, not obeying, not being what we should, he will say to us, be silent and get out of here. I cannot think of a more terrifying situation to be in than to be in front of Jesus in all of his resurrected glory and him say to me, shut your mouth and get out of my presence. If we do receive him and believe and trust, there is grace, there is mercy, there is peace. There is redemption. There is salvation. So the question then is, why not trust him right now? Why not trust him right now? Why not return to him right now? The sovereign one of the universe has displayed his authority through his teaching and through his victory over demons. And through his victory over sin and death when he rose from the grave. And he is calling you this morning to trust in him. You know, we see examples of authority around us every day. Experts in their fields testifying on Capitol Hill. We see parents rightly exerting their authority over their children. Office management putting uh, policies in place for more efficient work environments and more safe work environments. Police officers on the street busting criminals. Michael Jordan dunking over some dude's head. But those authorities, though legitimate, are limited. Jesus, in his early days, displayed his authority over the universe through his teaching and his power over demons. And he's not going to stop there. As we go through Mark, we're going to see that he has authority over sickness. He has authority over nature. He has authority over death. He has authority over all creation. But the question is, are you going to acknowledge his authority? Are you going to trust him? Will you place yourself underneath that authority? The person of Jesus demands a response. Will you reject him or receive him? Life and death hang in the balance in how we respond. Friends, choose life and follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we fall so short of you every day. And we confess, Lord, that we are not what we should be. But we thank you, Father, for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. 
Lord, we thank you that Jesus had authority over all things, for without that authority, we could be nothing. And so, Father, I pray that today we would love him, that we would trust him, that we would serve him, that we would know that he has done everything that is necessary to be righteous. And so, Father, help us today. Help those who may have been walking far from you. Help those who may be uh, struggling this morning in, in sin or whatever it is to return to you. Lord, I pray for those that may have never decided to follow you before, that they would place themselves in your sovereign, caring hand. And that they would see that though Jesus has authority, he never abuses that authority. He uses it to love us, to care for us, to lead us, to guide us, and to bring us to the unending fountain of joy in himself. Would those people turn to you right now and say, Lord, I want to trust in you. Help me to follow you. Would you do that miracle today, Lord? And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. On the first Sunday of every month, as a family of, of believers, we come together to remember what Jesus has done for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, uh, he had a, a meal with his friends in which he informed them, I'm going to be going away soon. Much to their bewilderment, Jesus said, actually, it's better for you if I take off because I'm going to be sending you someone better. But that didn't actually help the situation in their hearts. But Jesus said, I'm going to give you a tangible way to remember me. This bread that we're sharing in together, see me tear it. When you take of it, you are to remember my body breaking on your behalf. This wine that you're about to drink, we have grape juice here. It's red. It symbolizes my blood that will be spilled for you. And so, here we are, 2,000 years later. We're still celebrating the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We do not believe that, that these things in these containers are literally the body and blood of Jesus. They're simply a representation of what he has done for us. If you're here today and you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've recognized your personal sin, that you are indeed by nature sinful, but yet Jesus in his perfection and in his death on the cross and his rising from the dead is sufficient for all of those things to be taken away, this is for you today to partake. If you're not there today, I want to ask that you uh, refrain from taking of this, but to at least look at these elements and what they symbolize as they pass by you. You don't have to be a member of the church to, to partake here, as we believe that one day as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us, regardless of denomination that we come from, those who have trusted in Jesus will be sharing together in the marriage feast of, of the Lamb of God. And so you are welcome this morning. And so I'm going to ask those who uh, are helping to serve this morning to please come forward. How we do this here, we 
serve the, the bread first in silence and we hold on to it. And then we serve the juice uh, with a song. And then once the song is done, we, we all partake together. So hold on to those elements as, as they come by. Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. And so let's do likewise. Let's give thanks to the Lord. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, you saw fit that every believer in here would be yours. And so, Father, we want to glorify the risen Lord Jesus Christ for living for us, for dying for us, and for rising for us. May this be a time of celebration to remember what he has done. May we take of it joyfully and gladly, knowing that our names are in the book of life and that we will one day eat this with him in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen.